Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you today, I'm very well, Walker. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. First episode of the new year. Looking forward to some big, you know, end of the year lists being formed. Absolutely. Been seeing some, so much. They're all very different. Usually, you know, you have the same suspects, but this year, everyone is all over the place, which I love. You enjoy the chaos? I do. <laughs> you want to live in the disorder? Fair enough. All right. First things first, we're going to talk about the games we played last week. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Arborea. Mark, what did you play last week? I played another game of Evolution Climate. Evolution Climate is the standalone pseudo-sequel to Evolution by Dominic Capuchet, Dimitri Nore, and Sergei Machin. This was published by Northstar Games in 2016. I don't have any experience with the original version, nor do I have any other experience with the follow-ons. So keep in mind that the Evolution series is now long-running and with many iterations, but this is the only one that I've played. And it, like many other games of its era... Uh, was a tableau builder in which there's a sea of cards and you're expected to, to navigate what's going on. But here, what you're doing is you're crafting a custom species with various traits, with quite excellent artwork depicting the various traits, adapting to your food needs, your climate needs, and the possibility of predation. And the the... the overall, my experience with Evolution Climate is that it's, it's, it's fine. As a super light tableau builder, it's okay. The problem is, is that it's really trying to strain the simple tableau builder formula too far. Because when you have a huge deck that is not organized or structured or stratified or divided or, or staggered in any way, uh, generally speaking, as I've commented before, you really need to have incredible design and development chops to be able to pull that off. Examples that come to mind include Race for the Galaxy. 
and other games by Tom Lehman. He really knows what he's doing. This was one of my problems with Ark Nova. The animal that comes out has prerequisites that are impossible to meet. Uh, this is my problem with a number of games where a tableau gets clogged and it's just not at all, nothing at all interesting is coming up. This is a related problem for not only tableau builders, but the, the Dune Imperium game comes to mind. And with Evolution Climate, there are a whole bunch of subsystems that are potentially interesting that have a whole bunch of rules follow-ons that only seem to work if the cards come out in the proper order. I'm referring specifically to being a carnivore, because if, if anybody turns carnivore, they're suddenly playing a different game. And the threat of being predated on by a carnivore drives a lot of the potential tension. But in order to be a carnivore, it's the thorniest rules issue, it's nested with the most conditionals, and it depends on the right cards coming up at the right time. And all these things collectively, I think, are one of the key problems of evolution climate. It is rendered interesting by the possibility of predation, otherwise you're engaged in a relatively boring game of multiplayer solitaire with a relatively superficial element of hand management. But in order to be a predator, the things have to align in such a way, and suddenly everyone now is more at the mercy of the card deck than they were before. That's what I mean, because don't you just attack other dinosaurs, and then if... Well, they're not dinosaurs, Walker, unfortunately. Sorry. They're all manner of different species. All right, so, but... so you attack other animals. Yes. And then there are keywords that will stop you from attacking certain animals. And yes. And if some players just were lucky enough to get cards that get those keywords, then you're just going to target the ones that don't have. So those, the people that didn't get the right cards are now going to be targeted. Precisely. Oof. And it is often the case that the moment a predator shows up, a lot of people, either because they're being too conservative or because it's the right play, sometimes a mixture of both, end up just lording on a whole bunch of defensive traits onto their animal. They're still winning, but they're winning in a boring and uninteresting way because every trait that's on a surviving animal is worth a point at the end of the game. So that carnivore that's desperately trying to predate on people is, you know, trying to catch up in terms of being able to leverage its abilities. And yeah, it's going to get points from its traits as well, but it's this bizarre arms race that leads to stagnation in an unsatisfying way. It makes me feel like if Amvel Holland were designing this game, she'd have attached it to some sort of incredibly politically, socially, or historical relevant theme, so at least you'd be getting something out of it. But, you know, generally I don't find stalemates interesting. That was a strange analogy, but I stand by it. So Evolution Climate is fine. It's quick. It's fast-moving. It's got cute pictures. You get to have a fatty, tissued turtle that that's crepuscular and that that's kind of neat and that's all fun that that's all fine but ultimately i feel that the, that there are thorny rules issues just in the sense that it's this sort of grafted on element of more complexity on a very very simple game not that it's particularly burdensome but nonetheless there it is that leads to a weird game state that then just exacerbates issues with luck of the draw. So I really respect what Evolution Climate is trying to do. And if somebody were to propose playing some of its follow-ups, or even the progenitor, because I think that if you just removed some of the subsystems, that would lessen the impact of the luck of the draw. Because again, you've got this one deck that is meant to satisfy a whole variety of different game states. And I don't know that it can really pull that off. So I enjoyed my time with Evolution Climate. It was fine but I don't think I'll be seeking it out again. That is Evolution Climate by North Star Games. I put all my duds first, Mark, because I want to get them out of the way. <laughs> all right. Well, we have Tiny Epic Crimes, Mark. You know, we do, We have a... Oh, very... Tiny Epic Delusion Strikes Again. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, maybe this time. This is also <laughs> designed by Scott Ohms and published by Gameland Games. And this is some sort of weird uh, guess who clue type game. So there's this... Jack deck of suspects that's about 30 or so and 
Uh, they have the same back, and on the other side, it's that red sort of blotchy ink thing. So you use the funky lens of red, and you get to see all sorts of things. You get to see who it is, you get to see the weapon they used, you get to see the vehicle they used, and you get to see what gang they're in, and their sort of uh, level in the gang. And it's, it's, they're very... There's not a ton of different variety here, so you can easily, so you have this big, you have this card that has all of the suspects on it, so it's like, oh, does your suspect have a gun? No, and then so that's like half of the people gone, because it's either, you know, only three different things, and so now you're moving around, you're using that Red November sort of time track thing, where you're moving around this five by five grid, and you're doing actions that also cost time. And so you're moving down the track and whoever's furthest back on the track will go next. And so you can get multiple turns if you're doing little tiny things. Now the multiple problems. So all little of that. Little tiny things? I mean, isn't everyone doing a little tiny thing? Yeah, it's true. So all of that so far is the positives. Like those cards are cool. It has, has a chance because you're going to pick one of those suspects out and they go in the murder envelope. That. <laughs> The murder envelope. The murder envelope. And then for all of those different traits that I talked about, there are separate envelopes that just have a red little window in the right spot. So like when you do the thing on the map that lets you look that up, you take the murder envelope and the other fancy envelope and you switch the cards and they'll show you for that, for the murderer, what that trait is. Question. When playing this game and seeking to identify the gang affiliation of various criminals, were you worried that the bloods were going to come after you because everything was swathed in red? Uh, Yes. Okay. I was more scared of the crypts though. Okay. All right, then you get into the problems because it's a lot, not only a lot, almost all of it is people working towards something, then whoever finishes it gets the benefit. There are things at the top that you can do at night, things along the side that you can do during the day because the time track switches from day to night. It's like, oh, there's these three steps, but whoever does the last step actually gets to see the thing. Everybody else gets, you know, such a minor Benny that's pointless. Mm. So there's, there's those two things. Plus there's all these tokens on the map that are the same thing. Only the person that gets the last one gets the benefit. And that's so aggravating. Never mind the fact that our game broke, unfortunately, because when someone was switching the card with the envelope, they accidentally put one of their other suspects in. Ah. So our murderer got switched at the end, but luckily it was at the very, very end. So we, so two of us, still knew who the murderer was. So it's sort of finished. And that was the other huge problem. Marky, this, it's got this huge time track. And even though you already know who it is, you don't get to end the game. Really? You have to keep playing right to the end because you have this player board that every time you get one of those tokens, I was talking about, you move up this sort of like police track. And then when you get to the last sort of row of the time track, that's when everyone gets to make their accusation and whoever is highest on their little, Police track is going to be the winner. Huh. I mean, at least that that satisfies some of the standards of the mystery genre. You know, the the less so the police procedurals, but more the mystery genre where the where the, the ace detective knows the answer about halfway through the story and then just has everyone dancing along to their tune. But that does not sound like an ideal arc for a game. All of it was very painful. And there's some problems with the cards, because like I said, there's those ill envelopes that you're constantly switching the cards between. And they're very tight, so there's already been stories of of uh, cards being sort of nicked or damaged. Oh. So as soon as one gets done, then you know who that person is, yes. and, then, and then you'll see them. Well, that, that's that's what happens when you use murder envelopes. Yes. Cards are not going to survive encounters with the murder envelope. It's true. And that is all I'm going to say about Tiny Epic Crimes. I think I'm just going to stop with Tiny Epic Games. They're doing a Game of Thrones one next, and I'm not even going to... Not that I looked into any others, but right. I'm done. Reasonable. All right. So the next game, Mark, 
Well, it's a dud that we both played. At first, I didn't think it was that much of a dud, but upon the second game and reflection, and I played another game by the same designer, I played both The Fox Experiment and Undergrove. And I feel as though they both fail in the same way. There's no sort of build up. You're just doing the same thing over and over again. And then the next time you play, you just sort of slide in and start doing that same thing again. Yes. There's hardly any variability. In the Fox experiment, you're just rolling dice and checking off boxes. Yeah. Rolling dice, checking off boxes. So the Fox experiment, which I have played, I have not played Undergrove. I, I agree entirely. The first couple of rounds... I thought were kind of interesting, especially because the crucial time ratio of the interesting bits to the non-interesting bits was favorable. The interesting bits are the drafting. It's one of those areas where you can really start to identify what are the pressure points, what are the priorities, where, what can I wait on? You know, like a quality drafting game or a quality worker placement game where you can look at what other people have and say, okay, that, although I need I need it the most, they're not going to take it from me, so I can leave that until later. Yeah, that's what I said last week. That I love that drafting method. We've played multiple games that have that sort of thing. Yeah, the drafting is great. Yeah. And then, as you say, it then proceeds to just the dice rolling, which is purely mechanistic almost, very, very little decision-making, very mechanically uh, involved in a physical way, not necessarily in an intellectual way, and it just gets longer and longer and longer as the game proceeds. And in the first two rounds, you kind of don't notice because it's novel and you're doing it the least. But then as the rounds keep going, yeah, you're getting upgrades, but the upgrades just make things worse because you're just taking longer doing going through the motions. And what's more is that it's not so much variability. I would just say novelty because there's this conceptually interesting idea of using the foxes that you bred in round one as the parents for the breeding stock of round two. But that doesn't really change anything substantially. Like there's no particular interest in terms of, oh, well, this is the fox that I bred from last round or the one that Walker bred from last round versus the ones that come off the top of the deck. I mean, yeah, you get to name them. Other than that, hmm. So I, I agree with you. Fox Experiment outlasts its welcome and is utterly repetitive, and it doesn't lean into its strengths. And so the first half of the game, I was like, oh, well, this is kind of cool. And then the last half of the game, I'm like, when is this going to end? And I have no difficulty imagining, although it was my I've only played it the once, that you know round one of my next game could easily feel like round seven of a one game that just never stopped. That's, that is what it felt like. As, yeah. If you go back and listen to me, I was I was... I was semi up on the Fox experiment. Like I yeah. said, the, it was very, like you just said, I want to repeat it again. It was novel. It was interesting. It was something different. And then, and then it's just more of the same. And, and look, I understand it. Escalation is hard to do. I mean, there's the old joke about what bad role playing looks like. It's like, okay, well, when you're level one, you're just making rolls against some target. And, oh, well, later on, you're going to be level two. And then you get a plus one against a target of one higher. It's like, uh, all right, that, but that's not escalation. That's a fake sense of escalation. And the same thing happens in the Fox experiment. The numbers get higher, but you're not doing anything different. It's all just the same. And that is Fox Experiment, designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and Jeff Frazier, and put out by Pandasaurus Games. The next one is Undergrove. It's a mushroom game, also by Elizabeth Hargrave, but also co Designed by Mark Wooten, and this one is put out by AEG. And in this one, much the same. You just have a a the same actions that you're sort of doing over and over again. Some you can't do because you don't have the right resources, but you're putting out uh, mushrooms and and sort of vines out onto all these action spaces. You're sort of 
as a group building this grid and you're collecting the carbon, which turns your, your seedlings into trees and, and all the, the mushrooms are all the cards that you're putting out. So you're either doing an action on the cards to get the resources that will allow you to put out other things. And then you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I'm wondering, I played it on board game arena. So I'm wondering if I play it in, in with a physical copy, would it change it? I'm not sure. I very much lost interest quickly. Yeah, we talked about Undergrove about five seconds ago on Pledge of Indifference, so I assumed you were playing it online. Yes. Yeah. It was... Eh, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I'm going to read the rule book because, I, you know, it was one of these things that was easily picked up. It was like, okay, all of these actions are available because I have the right resources. And I can see how that, if I spent the resources, I'd get them back in this way, and then and then the game progressed. So I'm going to read the actual rule book to see if there's any way to you know, make it more interesting. And that's disappointing. I had, I had mild hopes for Undergrove. That's Undergrove. Well, you had a couple of duds. I had a couple of historically themed winners. I'm going to start with Votes for Women. This is a game that we've played before in the past, designed by Tori Brown. This is the second published design by Fort Circle Games, which is very much a publisher to look out for after Shores of Tripoli. Their follow-up is going to be, appropriately enough, The Halls of Montezuma. And Votes for Women is a two-player, highly asymmetric, card-driven historical game about the passage of the 18th Amendment of the United States of America, uh, recognizing women's suffrage. And I really felt the asymmetry this time in Votes for Women. So I got to play the happy fun time side of the opposition. I didn't feel great about that. And the game as it goes on, the power of the suffragist side ramps up considerably. It starts to spiral into this wild concatenating series of, of amazing card plays, which is appropriate because the burden that they have to clear is huge because they're trying to pass a constitutional amendment. And so there was a little skirmish about the Congress and the start of the game. The suffragists won that. And then we were off to the races trying to fight over the states. And as the opposition, you only need to, to win 13 states to prevent two-thirds majority in order to pass the amendment. Historically, it was a bit weird. We had the 15th Amendment before the Civil War, which for any Reconstruction buffs out there is a little bizarre. But nonetheless, it's just how it shook out. You know, one of the great things about historically driven CDGs is you can get some kind of pseudo-comprehensible narrative, even if the details uh, don't match up. And I could, I, I could imagine that kind of context working out. Uh, it would be weird, but there you have it. And it was... Uh, a very, very, very close game. The tension was very high because, again, uh, you know, my goals were modest as the opposition, but the tools that I had at my disposal were even more modest. It was very intriguing in that sense. Votes for Women is a real winner. It's been getting praises everywhere, I think deservedly so. The reprint uh, is up on crowdfunding, so if you want your copy, you can go get one. And I highly recommend it. The rules barrier is probably the lowest of any quality historically driven CDG that I've experienced uh, this side of Watergate. Watergate was, I think, comparably uh, uh, approachable in terms of rules load. A lot of people recommend 1960, The Making of President. I'm not a huge fan of that game for a variety of, of reasons. But I really think that if you want to show someone what historical games can do or what board games can do generally, I think Votes for Women is a very, very approachable game from a lot uh, for a lot of non-hobbyists. And it's a great way to show people what the hobby can look like. Uh, more on that later. I also got to play The Gods Will Have Blood, 
which is something I've been looking forward to very, very much. The Gods Will Have Blood is an, uh, adapted from a 1912 novel of the same name, uh, originally uh, written by Anatole France. The original published uh, the original title is Les Dieux en Soif, which strictly, literally translated means the gods are thirsty, which is uh, a warning sign, actually, I once saw outside a swan preserve uh, after Zeus had been noticed in the area. It is about a man named Évariste Gamelin, who's a local magistrate who basically just starts executing a whole bunch of people because it's the terror, and that's what you do in the French Revolution. I'm a sucker for any game about the French Revolution. And The Gods Will Have Blood is, it's actually very reminiscent of a lot of one-player RPGs because it's effectively selling you about a a narrative about very focused decision points. And very frequently the game is out of your control. Like what you do is you read a blurb about what an indiv- who an individual is and what they've been accused of, and you decide whether or not you want to execute them or exonerate them. And then you pull a couple cubes from a bag and the cubes might tell you, oh no, you don't get to do what you wanted to do. They're getting executed. It's theoretically possible that on occasion you might want to execute somebody and you're forced to exonerate them. This has not been my experience <laughs> in the course of The Gods Will Have Blood because one of the things that The Gods Will Have Blood shows or models at least in its evocation is that vengeance breeds vengeance. There's this notion of momentum. Most of the time after you execute somebody, you just keep adding more murder cubes into the bag, which makes perfect sense. But the goal of uh, your goal in the game, as Everest Gamelin in The Gods Will Have Blood, is to get enough credibility within the Jacobin party. You don't get credibility amongst the Jacobins by being nice. So there's this constant tension of trying to kill enough people, feed enough people to the machine without being consumed by that machine. And that, I think, despite the fact that this is very, very much situated in a very particular time in a very particular place, namely, you know, 1792 France, it's evocative of a lot of the challenges of bureaucracy, of big machine politics, of what it is to be uh, uh, somebody who wields power, but at the end of the day might be wielded by the power rather than the other way around. And I thoroughly enjoyed my couple of experiences. I would not describe it as particularly decision-heavy, but I did find the tension, I internalized the tension in a way that a quality narrative game can. And so I thought that The Gods Gods Will Have Blood was very, very evocative of some of these issues about power and compromise. And people who've heard me talk specifically about role-playing games, I really like stories about power and compromise. I really like stories where your personal priorities are at odds with your general principle. And I really like stories about people who are in the face of an unfeeling system and having to navigate that system. The designer, Dan Bullock, has analogized The Gods Will Have Blood to uh, some of the exploring some of the same themes as the very popular indie PC game Papers, Please. And I actually found this more moving than Papers, Please, for what it's worth, because I just liked the setting so much more, and I didn't think that the, uh, you know, bereft of its sci-fi trappings, or its sort of uh, uh, everywhere and nowhere trappings of, of Papers, Please, I actually thought that The Gods Will Have Blood was even more successful. Now, I did pay for my copy, but it was uh, it was assembled for me as a favor by the designer, so I'm just going to call it a review copy anyway. And it was a great one-player experience. It, it told a story. I, th- I internalized the tensions. I wouldn't pull it out again if I was looking for quality strategic decision-making, but I would absolutely pull it out again to experience that narrative again to see other people because uh, there are a couple times that I played, I lost relatively quickly. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I have not seen even a majority of the cards, and even if I had, I probably wouldn't remember the specific details. And it's not the game's not really about that. It's not for min-maxing. <laughs> 
suffice to say. But there's enough grist there to make you feel like your decisions have weight, and that is what you were looking for. So that's The Gods Will Have Blood, published this year, designed by Dan Bullock. So we just got through the holidays, Mark, and holidays means families come over, in-laws come over, and they want to play games. They see games, and they say, oh, is that like cards of get you know versus humanity? <laughs> and I saw I, and I don't say anything. So you know what we yep. we we played that and it was great. It was a great drinking. We everyone had fun. Cards Against Humanity is fantastic. And then I say, well, let me show you this game called Green Team Wins. Here, here. Right? here, here. And so we had a nine, a ten, an eleven year old, and and their parents and uh, my my wife and I. Wait, and wait, wait. You played Cards Against Humanity with a no, nine-year-old first? Okay, no. okay, okay. Just, I just wanted to make sure I understood I the not, narrative. I said, here's Green Team Wins. Right. We were playing Green Team Wins. It was a great hit with everyone. Kids were learning how to spell and write and learning what high school was going to be like. That, <laughs> that right answers don't matter. That you better get on board with the majority. Or on the topic of being ground up in a system. Yeah. Just so. Just so. <laughs> and so that was a great hit. This is Green Team Wins. It was designed by Nathan Thornton and put out by 20th Century Games. Make sure you get the 20th Century Game Edition because that's the edition of the Green Team. Well, in that it supports uh, 7 to 12 players instead of the... Uh, the Orange Team version. Yes. The Orange Team version, which only goes up to 6. I have the Orange Team version. It's very sad. All right. And then the next night. So the next night was just adults. It was another function. And so I had brought three games. High class function? High class function. Music's pumping? Music's pumping. No young M- You're not a no, fan I of young, young MC? MC. I, I, okay. I was trying to think of a, you know, a, a line that you know would would fit what I was about to say. but Well, the, the only thing to say is bust a move. Bust a move. We did. I busted out. First, I busted out fun facts. Well, if you want it, maybe you've got it. It's true. Okay, this needs to stop. I'm sorry. This is my fault. This is my fault. I've unleashed this... <laughs> The scourge onto the podcast. All right. Fun facts. So the first question mark was, so we got, you got this score on the first round. How do I track my score? So this, (laughs) this notion of a cooperative game, right? Which is, you know, is, is very new to some people, right? Sure. Not many games. It's true. And and it's, it's unfortunate because a lot of non-hobbyists don't want to pursue uh, hobby games because they don't want to they, they don't like being hyper competitive or they, they don't really care about winning or losing when the great joy of hobby gaming is that there's so many excellent co-ops it's true so so fun facts was a big hit as well so I decided to bring out just one right after just one was a huge hit and then unfortunately there was a dud I thought everything was going so great so clover is definitely the next one Ooh, okay to bring out yeah Right, because we have word association going on, yep. and then it was just it was that step too far. It was yeah. th- that finding one word that connects two words together. Not that it's difficult; it's just that it's out of the wheelhouse suddenly, right? Sure. You know, people that uh, that are into hobby games lately have been doing a lot of code names and games like that, so it's just like second nature to them. They understand the notion, but unfortunately, it was a a a bridge too far. So, so Clover was dud. We immediately went back to just one and just played that for the rest of the night because it was a huge, lots of questions about where do I get this? You know, is it on Amazon? Blah, blah. Many order, many copies were ordered. That is just one. Just one is designed by Ludwig Rudy and Bruno Salter and put out by Repo Production. This is, it was, this was a Repo Production night, by the way. Uh, Fun <laughs> Facts was designed by Casper Lapp, our, our, one of our new favorite designers. Also, 
published by Repo Production. And So Clover is designed by Francois Romain and published by, you guessed it, Repo Productions. They just hit after hit from them for party games lately. I agree. On the topic of party games, although this is not a party you want to be invited to, we played Door of the Lesser Houses, which is the design by Jenna Felly of Devious Weasel Games. This it's... is a review copy we got from the publisher. And it is my favorite Take That card game, despite the fact that it doesn't really look like a Take That card game, in that more or less the only thing you do on your turn is take points from somebody. Effectively, you have a hand of cards, and they come in different suits, and basically the different suits are take a point away from Huey, take a point away from Dewey, take a point away from Walker, take a point away from Sidewinder. That's what they say. They don't actually say that, but that's effectively what they say. Now, this was live-streamed with a full rules explanation because we'd actually had this request from a number of uh, Patreon backers, some commissioners who wanted us to do this. was long overdue. I apologize for the delay. And a great time was had by all. Uh, Huey, in particular, had been waiting to play this game again for years. And it's, it's one of those cases where, through a subtle application of proper theming and proper mechanisms, very much like Cosmic Frog, another design from Jenna Felly, it is almost impossible to take anything too personally because in a lot of take that card games or even a lot of board games where there's direct targeting of other players, it's very easy for some people uh, mentioning no marks in particular to take things more personally than they ought to, or to get bent out of shape because you feel someone's played inappropriately or made a bad play at your expense or what have you. It's look, I'm not defending this. This is a bad trait, but a lot of people have it and they come by it. Honestly, Door of the Lesser Houses, I've not, I, I cannot remember any time anyone having a particularly bad feeling about it. Because it's the nature of the game, and because of the theming and the presentation and everything, it's just, it, it you just fall into it naturally. And I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of Door of the Lesser Houses. This is a redevelopment of a game called Bemused. I prefer the theming to Bemused, but I think mechanically Door of the Lesser Houses is a little cleaner. In part because Bemused has this weird notion of, well, first of all, the theming is very, very grim. It's about driving people to death. And it's a little more complicated to figure out what happens when you're dead and the, the you don't really come back. Whereas Door of the Lesser Houses is a little more dynamic and you can come back from being an, an outcast house. Apparently there's going to be a novel coming out soon. Yes, that, I was going to... I'm sorry, I did, I did take it. That's a spoiler for the news, Walker. Oh, I'm sorry. You have to keep listeners okay. on the edge of their seats. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, absolutely. This is a full universe that Jenna Feli's been sketching out for, se for several years. And so that is Door of the Lesser Houses, a great time had by all. And uh, I, there was a conversation afterwards about how uh, from uh, somebody who was uh, there, my friend Josephus, who had some, it wasn't really his style of game, didn't really like uh, what, what he felt to be a certain degree of, of arbitrariness, but I was able to just lay it out afterwards. Like, no, 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 look, there are a couple of inflection points over the course of Do the Lesser Houses where uh, this was a misplay I did, this was a misplay you did, and had we not done those things, other things would have happened, and you, know, you, you can sketch it out. Yeah, it's, it does seem odd when you, when on the surface, it just looks like you're just playing the yep. best card out of your hand. It's like, well, these are the cards I have. So obviously I'm just going to do this, but you really need to look around the table and you need to keep a balance. Absolutely. Because if you let one person get away, they can, I can say, shouldn't say control the table, but if you let them get too far ahead, they're going to end the game and there's no way you can get back. So you're trying to keep this constant level. And like you said, it's always take that. So you shouldn't take it personally because even things that help you is usually taking a card that's hurting you and you're usually just giving it somebody you're, else. You're not really, there's a couple things that just flip it over, but right. usually you're, you're siphoning it off to somebody else. Absolutely. And, and it's about power. It's about power and tempo. 
And I've seen lots of different games erupt in very, very different game states. And one of the things about Door of the Lesser Houses, and this is true of the Resistance as well, very different games, but a game of the Resistance crafts its own internal logic that seems ineluctable and inescapable and, and kind of obvious. But then when you play your next game, an entirely different logic emerges. Door of the Lesser Houses is the same way. I've seen lots of games where you get a whole bunch of outcast houses right away, and the game spirals out, uh, spirals not out of control, but to its conclusion by virtue of that. In this game we played recently, there weren't any outcast houses for a very long time, and then there was one, but then they came back, and so it was mostly just houses withstanding. Anyway, uh, lots of dynamism in the gameplay, which is exactly what you want a game about deal making, about a lot, about temporary alliances, marriages of convenience. Massive fan yeah. of Door the Lesser. Yeah, houses. that's why I like the fact that I don't want to say it is that it is a little surface, more mechanical than it is mathy, like it is for for sure. the other games. So that allows a little bit more story, not so much storytelling, but role playing and deal making. Absolutely, and, yeah, it's and more it's to... more freewheeling. Yes, exactly. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So and much like Josephus. It, that type of game is not for me, but if we are to play it, Dur the Lesser House is definitely a game that, that I would play. And that is by Devious Weasel Games. And right after that, we played a shenanigans game of No Thanks. <laughs> are there where, are there any other kinds? Where obviously the deck was stacked and it was foolish. Someone cheated. I don't know what I think about No Thanks. I really don't. I can't tell if it's incredibly brilliant or too superficial for my tastes. It could be both. <laughs> for, for, I think for its time, for the time it takes to play, yes, and in the uh, the ease of the teach and and getting it going, I think it's a fantastic game. The, the, there was the, some weird dealings in this particular game because it was a brand new game, and I think some of the cards might have been you know stuck together. Yeah, maybe. I don't. Yeah, it was but, a little. It was a little weird like that. The, the parts of No Thanks that I really really love are looking at that card that's good for you. You know, you're sitting on the thirteen and the twelve comes up. And finding out how far you can push the table. Yeah. Because that reminds me of, of the same kind of push your luck dynamic that's not uncommon in games like Raw. And Skull. And Skull. And I really like push your luck when done well. And I think that that element of push your luck and no thanks is, is borderline brilliant. The part that I like less is how much resolves around which of the seven cards are out of the game to begin with. Uh, again, I don't take no thanks super seriously in terms of a competitive aspect, but it does just, I don't care how long the game is, but if you're going to spend 15 to 20 minutes on the game and all elements of push your luck are drained of any tension because the wrong cards are out of the deck. I've had a couple of sessions of no thanks like that, that I found unsatisfying, but when it, when it's firing well, and when it's operating as intended, no thanks is marvelous. Agreed. And that is no, no thanks designed by Thorsten Grimler. And this particular version is put out by Amigo. It had like neat little uh, phrases on the cards and stuff that I thought were amazing. Yeah, the little cards were like negging you or egging yeah. you on. It was great. Yeah, it was awesome. I got to play a game I've been meaning to try for quite some time ever since it was announced. And this is Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Lester. So, uh, fun fact, the Codex Lester is the most expensive book in the history of human civilization. It is an assembly of a bunch of Leonardo da Vinci's sketches of weird inventions, like his ornithopter and his bizarre tank. Uh, it was purchased for upwards of $20 million by Bill Gates, actually, when it was auctioned off. And it's called the Codex Lester, not because Leonardo da Vinci ever went to Lester, but that just happens to be where it was assembled in the 18th century. So that's why it's called the Codex Lester. This is a redevelopment of a game published in 2006 called Leonardo da Vinci. And for those of you that can remember back to the antiquated times of 2006, back before there was record any recorded history, 
Leonardo da Vinci was a worker placement game that was one of the first to really riff on worker placement in a really interesting way. This was, those were the heady days of, of Agricola has just been released. A bunch of people are experimenting with worker placement, sometimes really well, sometimes really badly. And I really liked Leonardo da Vinci's core worker placement conceit, which is preserved entirely in the reprint by Dice Tree Games. And that is, when you send workers to a location, you can send any number you wish... And then when it comes time to resolve that location, whoever has the most workers there, ties broken by whoever got there first, so there's still a timing pressure, gets to do the thing for free. And then the next highest person gets to do it by paying victory points. And then so on and so forth uh, with escalating prices. So before you, I just want to make sure. And then you get to cycle around again to the precisely. beginning. Precisely. So if you're there alone, you can do the action several times by paying a whole bunch of points for it. If you're there with two other people and the second person can't afford or doesn't want to do it for the expensive version, you might get to do it again and again as well. Anyway, there's lots of different dynamics about not being able to get there first or not caring about whether you get there first, despite the fact that money is points and points are very, very, very tight. Ultimately, uh, then it boils down to recipe fulfillment, but the recipes tend to be very, very simple in their requirements in terms of materials, like this needs two materials. But the timing issues, again, and this is one of the innovations of the Codex Lester version, the timing considerations are rather pointed because whoever finishes the work first gets benefits, but other people may have been forced to declare that they're working on the same thing. Now, they'll get still get points, and they'll still get some benefits, but but fewer benefits. That and uh, because this is a, a, a Euro game being redeveloped in the 2020s, it has a track with, where it didn't have a track before, and a couple of other uh, innovations to make it cleaner, which I very, very much appreciate. I've always enjoyed Leonardo da Vinci. The original version, I thought, had a couple of problems with setup that were a little unfortunate. Just didn't make me want to pull down the game over and over, but I very, very much like the changes in Codex Lester, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it, Walker. Yeah, this is by far one of my favorite games I've played this year. Great. Yeah, it is It is so good. Like, there's this uh, chart, like Mark already talked about, in the center of the table, because it pertains to all the major worker placement spots, where you cycle the first one's first person's free, then three gold, then four gold. And it's actually two, three, four. Two, three, four. And then, the, and then there's a bunch of sort of resource spaces, and the key spaces to go get so busy that you can sort of offshoot off and, and you're usually going to be the only person in these resource things. And just that dynamic of, of, of just sort of having those free spaces out there. It's like, oh, well, they're already there. So I'm not going to bother because I don't want to pay anything. I just want to be the first one there to get free. And then there's these, uh, blueprints cycling along the bottom. And then you have this interesting sort of, uh, personal board where you're making these workshops. And then you're throwing workers in there as well, and you're generating these work points, which will move your timeline because certain inventions take so long to build. And then it's like, okay, well, I have enough workers, and I have some automatons in there, and I generate eight work, and I can get this done this turn. And there's so many different timing considerations. Very much enjoyed this game. Can't wait to get it back to the table. I'm glad you appreciate it. It felt it was really one of those interesting cases of game development because, again, it, it came out during this early rush of worker placement games, and now it's been retooled with some more uh, modern concessions. Now, I, I joke that there's a track. There's not really a track. It's just you you get various benefits as you accomplish various milestones that everyone has. It's represented in a track form, but it's not the conventional throw resources the track issue. And they're so useful down that track. Everyone is so intricate and, and yep. beneficial. You just don't know which one you want to take first. Oh, so good. Yeah, it's really well done. It was well done to begin with, and I really think that the redevelopment uh, in in large part by Chung Hyun Baek, 
of Dice Tree Games has been for the good. This was originally designed by the Italian design collective called as Architoca, and they were the. This was their first uh, published design that I noticed. This is Flaminia Bersini, Virginio Gili, Stefano Luperto, and Antonio Tinto. And as I say, uh, Dice Tree Games, which is a Korean outfit uh, redeveloped by Chung Hing Beck. And uh, I've, I've been a big fan of Dice Tree Games ever since they did a lavish reproduction of Winter Circle with painted horses and metal coins and such. Very expensive to import, uh, not super, super accessible. I passed on the reprint of Raw because it looked a little gaudy for my tastes, which is nonetheless appropriate. Like, we have this notion of historical artifacts being sort of austere and sepia-toned, but in point of fact, they tended to be garishly colored. I mean, the, 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 the Elgin marbles are a great example. Like, we have this idea that they were, you know, white and stark. It's like, no, 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 they were, they were painted up... Uh, 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 more or less like drag queens uh, when they were originally displayed. At any rate, setting that aside, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Dice Tree Games, and I, I, I like trying them when I get access to them. Now, unfortunately, the, the production is not doing any favors because I sort of dreaded playing this game. <laughs> it's got the usual brown, beige tint. On the topic of sepia, yeah. And then, and then the name, right? Leonard's Codex Lester. Yeah. And then uh, it's just not doing itself any favors, right? It's, it's very, it comes off as very dry and... I think they might be losing an audience, unfortunately, but just give it a try. Fantastic game. All right, so I talked about things that we streamed. We did two weeks. We've been away for a week because of the holidays. Uh, we did the Tiny Epic Crime. We did Dewar the Lesser Houses. We did No Thanks. And the last one that we that I streamed is a game called Road Tripping. It does not have a artist or designer. It only has the publisher, which is Guilt Free Gaming. Well, well credited. Credited. It no doubt had artists it and did. designers. It did. <laughs> but that I could not find out. And I love this game. I am awful at this game, as you can see in the stream. I did do a little, like, last-minute comeback, but still not even close. Uh, uh, Warm Boy destroyed all of us because it's just his type of game. And what you will do, you have this nice big metal license plate that has seven spots for you to put letters or numbers one through nine. Or spaces. You can leave spaces because you've got extra points if you use if you leave spaces and extra points if you use numbers instead of letters. Then everyone's going to flip up a card and they're color-coded. So you, everyone says, okay, we're going to do the red one. And it'll have like phrases like road trip or freewheeling or hot rod. And then you have to sort of make a license plate with that phrase. Interesting. With only the seven letters and using numbers as, you know, as trick letters or you right. know, coming up with phrases. I just love that type of wordplay. Uh, I think everyone really much enjoyed it. You have like sort of 30 seconds. <laughs> you, you know, it's mm. not, it's not, you know, sit and, and figure it out. It's, you better get that down on the, on the metal or else you're out. It's. And then do people have to guess what the word you're trying to clue in just out of context or do you have to match it? Do they match it to cards? No, uh, what what happens is same thing with the 30 seconds. We start with the first player. They flip theirs up. Everyone tries to guess what it is. And the first person to guess it will get the same points as the person that wrote it. I see. And it, But again, this is out of context. Sorry. It's not from a list. You're not trying to match. Like, no. so clever, you're matching cards yeah, to clues. Yeah, no, no. You'll have, no you'll oh, my no goodness. Idea. Yeah, no. You'll have, you have no idea. No. I would end with a score of 0. 0.0 points. It was great. <laughs> Definitely, if you have just a second, check out the stream. Super fun. It is called Road Tripping by Guilt-Free Gaming. 
Finally, for me, I finally got to try Star Trek Away Missions. This is something that has been on my radar for some time, particularly because a number of reviewers that I trust, like Charlie Thiel, have identified it as being very, very similar to Warhammer Underworlds. And we're still very, very big fans of the mechanisms of Warhammer Underworlds, but it's kind of gotten into a bloated meta state where we don't really want to engage in deck construction anymore. What, Games Workshop? game got out of control and, yeah, no doubt. and, and bloated and, and they try to siphon money out shocking. of every, yeah, shocking. Yeah. yeah. Everyone so, was shocked. Uh, Star Trek Away Missions is, is in some ways it's actually genuinely fascinating because I've often wondered in the back of my head, what would a skirmish miniatures game look like if you didn't actually spend much time fighting? And the answer is you end up with Star Trek Away Missions and s- sometimes this is okay so I've heard reports that, especially with some of the other add-on expansion packs, that sometimes people just never trespass into each other's territory, and it devolves into a pseudo-game of multiplayer solitaire, which is fascinating. I don't know that I'd want to play it that way. Our game had very, very, very little combat, and I think that that was probably a good minimum value. Basically what happened was I was playing the Federation and I, I eventually looked down at my objectives and says, do I have a good reason not to send Worf to go try to cut people's heads off with a Batleth? And the answer was no. I did not have a good reason not to send Worf to try to go cut people's heads off. He's a good candidate for that. Well, I thought that today was a good day to die. And so I sent him out and so there was a very, very little amount of combat. And I kind of appreciated that quantity, uh, especially because I had some objectives that required me to, you know, kick some ass and take some names. And I don't know if I'd appreciate the the setup if there was no combat involved, because essentially what happens is you have these objectives that say, go pass a check at a certain kind of space. And you look down on the map and say, okay, well, what's the most efficient way that I can get somebody in that place to then go pass a check? So that was one interesting aspect of Star Trek Away Missions. And in theory, I might be interested in seeing how this shakes out with different teams. In practice, though, I'm not, because in the starter set, it's the aforementioned Federation against the Borg. And uh, another thing that has been pointed out by a number of reviewers, uh, again, Charlie Thiel pointed this out, Dan Thoreau pointed this out, uh, the balance in the base game is non-existent. It really looks like the Borg have no chance at all of being competitive against the Federation with the indicated starter decks. And as we've said many, many times in the context of this podcast, we're not super competitive, but if it's clear that you just can't get anything done by virtue of built-in asymmetry that doesn't lead to a whole lot of engagement and number two you only have one chance to make a good first impression if your intro scenario is garbage if your intro scenario is highly unbalanced it's not going to make me look into either engaging in deck construction trying to make a finely crafted deck or theory crafting how to make a more balanced starter set of starter decks much less buying expansion packs and seeing how other factions might work this is this is the inverse of the suicide mission problem Space Hulk, one of the reasons why Space Hulk is such a brilliant game is that in editions one through three, the first mission is a banger. And yeah. <laughs> so if the second or third missions aren't to your taste, you know that the system works and is amazing. It's true. That having been said, the balance isn't very good in Space Hulk, but whatever, it tells a story. In the context of Star Trek Away missions, the balance didn't feel satisfying from a tense perspective. I felt bad for Walker because he didn't have a chance. It didn't make me feel, ooh, I'm doing something so heroic. Nah. Well, I wouldn't mind trying it again. We do have another faction coming. We have some Klingons coming. And I'm, I'm oh, in- do we? Oh, yeah. Well, you know me. Garon says Happy oh, yeah. New Year. Exactly. Um, I do love me some Garon. Garon memes are the best. And I'm, I'm thinking that they're going to have some actual combat missions, which, which might I be imagine. I'll give you some context because it is so much like Underworlds that it's kind of 
criminal. Um, <laughs> you have a deck that is full of equipment and uh, things that will help your units do the things that they do. And you have another neck deck that is the missions that you have to get to in order to score victory points. The game will last three turns no matter what, and you try to score as many victory points as you can. Now, with the generic rules load of how the game works and then the additional rules load of how my faction worked there was a, a some sort of you know key interactions that that i missed that i might have jumped on earlier that might have i don't think would have changed but sure would might have been a little bit closer okay all right but yeah, yeah I'll, I'll try it again if you want i would happily try the Federation against the Klingons. It would certainly show what the system looks like when there's more fighting, and it would potentially show if the faction balance is universally as problematic as the base game would indicate. But it, it at least, I, I will say this, and this was again pointed out by, by Dan Thoreau, it does Star Trek better than a lot of other Star Trek games. I, I was about to follow up with that. If if you are a Star Trek fan, it it has all the throwbacks that you want. It has the turbo lifts, it has, you know, the 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 headquarters, the sick bay, um, sick you've bay got the command and, sections, and all this. Yeah. And, the bridge and, is what I was trying to say. Right. And it, it most Star Trek games tend to fall into, well, how are we going to do a different version of fighty? And look, most Star Trek wasn't about combat. Sorry, I haven't seen Star Trek Discovery, so I can't comment on that. But uh, I, this is one of the ways in which I felt the uh, Star Trek retheming of Mage Knight was actually pretty good because you had all these non-combat things to do. Granted, it was mostly similar to combat with a different kind of paint, but at least they were trying to make a gesture towards it. So s similarly, in the context of away missions, you're at least doing a lot of non-combat objectives. You know, it's like your job is to go fiddle with the engineering station. That's a thing that happens all the time in Star Trek. <laughs> When it's trying to be an action franchise, I don't know that... Certainly not the, with the next generation cast and crew. Uh, that was not one of the, the, you know, some of the highlight reels of Star Trek. So at least it, at least it gets that right. That right. I will give it that much. I don't know. Stepping over chairs is pretty action-packed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we made a lot of jokes at Riker's expense. <laughs> so those are the games we played last week. Now a brief break while we go pay some bills. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. Now onto the news and why it doesn't matter. We like, sorry, we are French. Well, they put out Iki, which is a great game. I looked over a bunch of other stuff. I can't, didn't see anything that like super stood out, but they're coming out with the new Fabio Lupiano and Nestore Mangioni game. It's going to be called Shackleton Base, A Journey to the Moon. Looks very interesting. Not much information on it. Love those two designers. Love the publisher. Looking forward to it coming out soon. Solid crew. Many of you have noticed that there was a profile of Annabelle Holland, game designer and game publisher extraordinaire, in The New Yorker. And it is called The Personal and Political Art of Board Game Design. It's very interesting. A lot of it is going to be old hobbyists, but they did manage to reach out and talk to a lot of really, really interesting people. I mean, foremost among them, Annabelle Holland, who's a fascinating individual. And so learning more about her design process... Uh, listening to a good writer have their mind crowbarred open as to what hobbyist games could look like. Interesting stuff. A link to it is in the episode notes. Zombie sniper. Is this a zombie who's a sniper? No. Or is this a sniper who shoot? Uh, I'm... uh, uh, All right. That's it. Zombie sniper. That's all you get. That's all I'm getting? Yep. Okay. That's all you need. Is it? Yeah. I can think of needs that I have that are not satisfied by zombie sniper. I don't know. (laughs) Apparently that's all we're getting. Zombie Sniper. So, more Genefelli news. Uh, Walker spoiled some of this already because he has no notion of maintaining suspense. Uh, under her name, Jenna Kincaid, she's going to be publishing her first novel called Serpent Ascending. It is going to be in the universe of Door of the Lesser Houses. This is slated, according to her announcement, to be published sometime in March or April of this year. I say this year because it is 2024. And also, she has uh, posted on social media the cover art of her upcoming card game, Murray the A-Hole Frog. This is a game designed by a trans game designer, published by a trans game publisher, and the art has been done by a trans artist and I have played uh, pre-production versions of Murray, the a-hole frog. I haven't played the final production rules yet, so I'm not in a position to comment. Uh, but I have to say that Murray, the a-hole frog, uh, I-, I think that Jenna is really cornering the market on frog based excellence. And I think that this is a motif that she should continue to explore. She set a high bar. Yeah. Oh yeah. She set a high bar for frogs, uh, two miles high tall. Yeah. Uh, but Murray the A-Hole Frog, I think, is definitely exploring a new avenue for frog representation in board games. And so I congratulate her. And, uh, you know, if she's found her idiom, then 
I mean, her, she already had an idiom. Devious Weasel games don't really feel like a lot of other kinds of games as a rule. Uh, so I'm looking forward to Murray the Hill Frog. Congratulations to Jennifer's upcoming pursuits, both board game and otherwise. All right, Mark, lastly from me, you and I both like quirky little games, and I think you're going to love this one. So picture it. Uh, there is, we're trying to steal gems. Okay. And money. And there's sort of like a maze. And we're using, you're using a dry erase marker and you're working your way through the maze. You have red glasses on, so only you can see the red laser beams. I have blue glasses on, so I only can see the blue ones. Okay. And I'm talking to you and I'm trying to get you to go through this maze through a certain time. Is this cooperative dungeon scrawlers? Yes. Oh my goodness. It's going to be amazing. It is called either Accomplices or Accomplices or Together. I think they're going to go with, for the North American release, it will be called Two, Letter Two, Together. This is designed by author Angela and Tony Barala and Julius Meshood, and it's going to be put out by Old Chap Editions. I'm there. I knew you would be. So Envelopes of Cash is a marvelous satire of unpaid labor. Sorry, I meant student-athletes uh, of the NCAA. And I we very much enjoyed the prototype version that we got to play. The published version hit my doorstep last week. I haven't had a chance to play it yet. But it is uh, definitely heavy, which features into uh, the, the news elements here. Andy Schwartz, the economist who talks about antitrust law, in specifically with respect to sports uh, economics, and uh, parenthetically, uh, if I have one recurring gripe, about uh, under-regulation in Canada the United States, despite my various libertarian leanings. It is the unfortunate atrophy of antitrust law in a variety of different venues. But anyway, moving on. Uh, Andy Schwartz has published The Financial Reckoning, giving a lot of transparency about the money behind crowdfunding and delivering a game, particularly in the tsunami of weird financial effects of, you know, the past couple of years. Uh, there's a link to it in the episode notes. I highly recommend it. It's a very, very... As I say, it's a lot of a lot of transparency. We like radical transparency here and so very wrong about games and in an industry that doesn't tend to publish uh, things about figures or budgets or sales numbers or anything. It's very, very illuminating. And I'm very much looking forward to trying my copy of Envelopes of Cash at the soonest available opportunity. And then finally, uh, some sad news about upcoming games that I've been very much looking forward to. For a long time, uh, when people have been asking what's coming up in crowdfunding that you're really looking forward to, my answer has been, or at least included, Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition. Unfortunately, due to a mistake, and for what it's worth, I I take the publisher's word due to a mistake, uh, there is a uh, an item in the Epic Items deck called the Banner of Kekistan, which is crypto-fascist imagery. The designer didn't know that it was crypto-fascist imagery when it was originally proposed, and when he was made aware of it, he had intended to remove it from the final published version, but due to an error, it ended up getting published. And look, I have no difficulty believing this to be true. We see misprints from major publishers all the time. We see instances where major publishers put misprints in their errata packs and publish the wrong card backs for entire card decks. So I have no difficulty believing that through a good faith error, uh, this managed to creep through. If you have or are acquiring a copy of Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition, I encourage you to follow suit what I'm going to do when I get my copy, and what a number of uh, people have already declared. I'm going to be burning this card, because crypto-fascist imagery has no place in board gaming. 
I'm going to be going into more detail about this later when we talk about Assault on Doomrock Ultimate Edition when we when and if we get to play it. And I'm actually going to be publishing a uh, full-length editorial about crypto-fascism in the board gaming hobby as a uh, Patreon-exclusive episode in the coming weeks. So an unfortunate incident. For what it's worth, I believe it was unintentional. You can see the author slash publisher's apology on BoardGameGeek in, in a thread that quickly went off the rails, but he published a very, very fulsome explanation about what happened and an apology, so you can check it out there. But I would encourage you to skip past a lot of the, let's just say, people asking the wrong question and answering it badly <laughs> that you see in a lot of those threads. But that's the kind of thing that you find on the internet. Anyway, that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game. What's our feature game, Walker? Arborea. Arborea was designed by Danny Garcia and published by Alley Cat Games this year after successful crowdfunding. Danny Garcia was also the designer of Barcelona, another game that we reviewed this year. It is a two to five player game about psychedelic forest monsters. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Arborea? Well, the water park slide in the spirit world has opened. And boy, <laughs> are there options. But don't spend too much time on these slides because while you're having fun in the sun and gallivanting around, monsters are infesting your home realm. But in reality, your friends have laced your RC Cola with LSD. So... <laughs> Get ready for a psychedelic trippy ride. All right. <laughs> so you're putting out different types of workers. Well, do well done, Walker. <laughs> you're putting out different types of workers. You're seeding the board. So you have action efficiency. You're generating resources for the group, for the whole table, and you're figuring out a sideboard spatial puzzle. This is what you're doing in Arborea. So let's start with the economy, because I think this is the best aspect of Arborea bar none, and it's really, really well done. There have been a lot of Euros that have some version of pooled common resources that individuals get to draw from. I mean, most recently we talked about Ceres, which is a worker placement game where the pool of workers is largely communal. In practice, what that usually shakes out to is just another draft. Sometimes it's interesting, sometimes it's not interesting, but that's just the nature of drafting. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. And I think that Arborea does a better job of managing this common versus private resource generation better than any other game in recent memory. What happens is if you generate resources on your turn and then spend them, well, that's what happens. You generate the resources and then you spend them. If you generate the resources but then end your turn not having spent them, you get points. And you get more points based on how starved the system was for resources. If you're the first person to generate a whole bunch of water, that could easily be in excess of 10 points. Which is not going to win you the game by itself, but is definitely going to make a difference. On the other hand, if you generate the you know eighth iteration of Coral, you're probably only going to get a point or two. So ideally what you want to do in the best instance, and this I think is when Arborea really shines, uh, don't worry, there's a twist coming later, I'm not actually a massive fan of Arborea, uh, is you want to generate the resources that you know other people won't be able to spend, and then spend them yourself later, pocketing both the points and the resources themselves. And when the game of Arborea lets you do that and plan around those things, I think it's really something quite compelling. Agreed. It is my favorite part of the game. It is definitely the hook and what I try to emphasize when, when I introduce it. So what do you do? What, how does a Borea work? Well, if you need something, we've got a slide for that. There are four <laughs> tracks, both with two slides on either side. So that's 40 different slide options on the whole board. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's actually a good way to present it. All right. So on your turn, you're either going to 
So what, so what I'm trying to say is that there's these sort of conveyor belts. So you put your work on a conveyor belt and they slide along in various points of the game that sort of line you up with one of these slides. And the further you go down these conveyor belts, the better the slides get. So on your turn, you're either putting a worker at the beginning of one of these conveyor belts or you're sliding the conveyor belt along. And then you can spend spirit to do that again, if you wish, one or the other. Then at any time, whenever a, when a, whenever a conveyor belt moves, you get to jump off the conveyor belt. Because on every one of your turns, you get to go down a slide. So you sort of, like I said, you want to seed the board. You always want to make sure you have the option of going down a slide. You want to waste a turn not going down a slide. So then you slide. And like you said, you're either going to get a bunch of, you know, resources or you're going to put out these monsters. Something's going to happen. And then, like you also said, you then you get to buy a card as long as you have a card available to buy or to purchase or to put out and those resources are available. And then you will get the points for the resources you didn't use. And then all of the tracks that you are on will slide up again. So fundamentally there's a number of different ways to score points in Arborea. The, the one that I find most interesting again is, is managing the supply of resources. But at the end of the day, the end game scoring is going to be very, very conclusive and not in a surprising or unfortunate way, but it's, it's one of those ways that you can really point to a new player and say the heuristic is the more monsters you have out, the better you're doing. And you can generally not even look at the score track. You can just look at a table and kind of figure out who's going to win the game based on that blunt determination alone. I think the average uh, end game score is about 50. And then like at the end of game play. Right. And then the end game score is, could be an upwards of 200. Yes. Which is to say that those points you get from resources, again, are influential, but probably not going to be determinative. And Arborea is one of those games where getting a monster out in a good location requires a lot of things to fall into place. One of them is, as you said, you need to, get the card. Then the resources you need have to be out there, and then they have to stay out there so that you can take advantage of them. Now, maybe you generate themselves, but then you're spending a lot of points to do that, so sometimes that's an interesting trade-off to consider. Then the monster you want has to be out there, and then you have to get the monster before or at a time when other people don't get it, and then you have to be able to place the right kind of monster on the right kind of card. That is the route to success in Arborea. I don't have any problem with that in the abstract. The problem is, and one of the areas where I think Arborea goes from something that really could have been special to merely a, in my estimation, a slightly above average Euro game, is that all of these variables and all of these issues are very time and economy intensive and, or should I say fragile or susceptible to, to, to variance, and you wield precious little control over when and how these various details are going to emerge. Now, by the same token, just in terms of my priors, I don't mind some games where what you're doing is you're riding a sea of chaos and trying to make the best of what's going on. The problem is, is that when I'm playing Arborea, I feel like these two elements, the need for all these details to be falling in place at the right time, plus the weird elements of bizarre chaos about this track proceeded at lightning uh, pace and now I'm going down whatever water slide I want versus this other track is moving at a snail's pace versus my inability to parse which of the 40 different slides I actually want. That's a bit of an exaggeration. You don't actually need to figure out between 40 different ones, but it's a lot more complicated and the game doesn't do you many favors in terms of figuring it out. That tension between the chaos and the order that's required is what makes me feel like when I'm playing Arborea, I'm actually playing something that's far more arbitrary, not necessarily random, but far more arbitrary than I'd like it to be. 
I can see where that's coming from. I think it's sort of like being able to turn on a dime, making sure that even though the resources aren't there for you to take, that you have something sort of backup that you're going to work on this other thing instead sure. type thing and either A, generate the resources for points instead, or B, just sort of hold on for a turn on your next turn, the resources more than likely will be there or or not. Well, we, right, but that's just one element, right? Yes. There's the resources, there's the card, the right resources for the right card, for the right monster, for the right placement, for the right time to take the monster, right? Yes. And compounding this is the fact that there are all these different slides available. So let, let I think that there are two key uh, offenders here in terms of the different slides. One of them is because it's almost nowhere, and one of them because it's almost everywhere. The almost nowhere problem is there are these god gifts. At the end of every water slide, you get to trigger a god gift. And these can be huge. These can give you the kind of flexibility that can turn a nothing turn into a massive combo-tastic turn the way that some euros do. But in order to do that, you need to get out these god gifts in the first instance. The sages. I just want to make sure because so people know what we're talking about. Ah, thank you. Yes, the sages. And there are precisely two places on the water slides where you get to place those out. Now, there's a sea of other effects right? Card effects and various situational bonuses and one-time shots and other sage effects that let you put out more. But at its core, when people ask the very reasonable question, how do I do this thing? You point to precisely two spots amongst the 40 different water slides and say, there, that's how it's done. That's one example of how much bottlenecking there is in Arborea. The other extreme, and again, it's this juxtaposition between these two extremes that I find often uncomfortable, is what monster do I need when? And generally speaking, you can collapse some of the 40 water slides into smaller ones because, you know, one of the water slide tracks might generate two water, but the next water slide track generates three water. Well, clearly then, that's not really a, a, a universe of detail you need to be able to process. That's pretty simple. Just wait in, it'll get better and decide timing. The problem starts to creep in again, though, when track one on the water slide might generate a certain color of monster, the one you really want. The next one might not generate any monster at all, and then the next one will generate a different monster of a different color. So in practice, what this amounts to, again, in terms of actually playing Arborea, is it, okay, I want a purple monster. I can't even remember what it's called. We call it, uh, we call it Terrifying Eevee. Uh, because, oh no, 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 that's it's the, the green one. Uh, I'm sorry. That's the green one. Okay. Say I want a green monster. We call it the terrifying Eevee, or I want the sort of, uh, light pink one, which we call the, uh, uh, death frog turnip spider turnip spider. Yes. Yes. It's the turnip spider. And you look over the board and say, okay, I can get a turnip spider here, but not if I wait too long here, but only waiting long and here different. Like, uh, okay. Uh, and so it's just this, it ends up feeling again, like this weird sea of arbitrary things. And what I do when I start being unable to process that level of heuristic, I just start playing Arborea purely opportunistically. And either I get the combos to, to, to fall out and I don't know, I don't even understand why, <laughs> or they don't. I'm, I'm also wondering if it's because we got sort of locked into a into a chain of doing the same thing over and over again. It's like we'd create the spot for the monster. We'd get the monster we would need. We'd put the monster where we made the spot for it. I'm wondering if it's possible to sort of just for the whole beginning of the game, just work on developing the, your land part. And then at the end of the game, just populate it. Then I'm wondering if, if there is that opportunity to do that, whether you're not always locked into the same sort of, you know, make the spot, get the monster, put the monster in, start again. It's possible, but I don't know that Arborea really encourages players to think in those terms. 
Because again, every resource that matters, whether it's a card, whether it's a monster, whether it's the actual bare resources, if you don't grab them, someone else will. And ultimately, that's that's where a lot of the tension comes from. A lot of the pleasant tensions, like, ooh, uh, will I be able to get this out before somebody else snakes it from me? And what that it does is it encourages you to engage in these short-term transactional plans because I'm not sure that this kind of long-term planning, oh, I'll be able to get it later, is at all wise. And even if it is wise, again, Arborea encourages you not to think that way. It's true. It could be possible. We did play it. We played it at three and then at two and then at five. And I really don't feel as though it shines very well at five. Agreed. Uh, the downtime is atrocious. Well, not atrocious. It's not, it's not beneficial to the game, that's for sure. It's manageable. The downtime's and, manageable, but the it, chaos is not, I don't the think. The chaos is, yeah, way off the scale. And it sometimes even just kept targeting the same person over and over again. It seemed as though, you know, resources were generated and then used up and then would get back to that person. Yep. And then they couldn't do anything and then they would generate some or do something else because they could. And then the, and then the cycle would begin again, you know, the generate and then they disappear and then they would have nothing. Right. So not great at five. I thought it was its best at two, honestly. Best at two. Because then, then what you're able to do, the universe of noise is, is narrowed enough that you can look over at your opponent and say, are they going to be able to get a card or do they already have a card that uses these resources or will they still be around for my next turn? Because when you're playing even with three or four, the possibility of, again, that weird combo that you can't really anticipate for, it's all there. It's all public information. It's not that it's secret. But the thing is like, oh, I forgot about that weird sage power they set up for last turn or this strange one-shot token that hasn't been claimed yet that is then going to let them snake the thing. It's like, okay, they're going to be able to use the coral after all, so I better snap it up now. And again, if I think... I think one of the ways that I think Arborea could have been improved for my taste is maybe if there had been one or two fewer game mechanisms going on. Like, for example, there is this currency called Spirit, which, for the life of me, I had difficulty spending fast enough. And other people had the opposite. A, which is a strange problem. And other people seem to be in holes that they couldn't get out of. And I w- if, if I'd had more mental energy left over, again, I was just trying to grapple with the, the symbols that were going on, and it was often the case... And I, I was contributing to the downtime of, of the larger player count games where I'd be like, why did I put that worker there? Why are they on that water slide? What was I? Oh, I, I can't even remember what the economic state was when I put them there such that I thought that I'd want a couple coral generated in the system. Okay, I guess I'm doing this thing now. <laughs> well, I, I think that sort of sh- showed because I watched it happen. It was like I was at the beginning of the game. I was hesitant to spend it because I didn't want to go into the hole. And then I watched you spend it almost every turn yet get it back. And then I immediately started doing the same. And I also respect the spirit. Yeah, respect the spirit. I also just stayed at the top. I think it's one of these things where you spend it, you're going to get it back. And if yeah. you if you're hesitant to spend it, then you're just going to remain in the hole. Yeah, I just I I imagine an alternate version of Arborea, possibly with a couple more uh, hits with the development hammer, or a little bit more simplification, where I wouldn't feel as confused and powerless in a sea of chaos. This isn't even about playing well versus playing poorly. It's just that it's one of those instances where everything has to come together for me to get where I want to go. And whether or not everything is going to come together seems beyond my grasp. And it all just seemed like opportunistic happenstance when I play poorly and uh, almost uh, dizzyingly incomprehensible when I'm... Yeah, because it is crazy. Because at the beginning of your turn, you're going to put out a worker. But what type of worker? Yes. Because you have three different types of workers. Some are going to move the track faster. Some, yes. when they get to the end of the track, when you get the sage power, they're going to be able to trigger different sage powers because of the type of worker they mm-hmm. are. 
And then where to, you know, where to jump off. So there's like so much choices. And if it were more like, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, more like Tsulkin. Tsulkin, the longer a worker stays on a given path, it just gets, it just goes up on an almost linear level. There are a couple of exceptions, broadly speaking. But look, if you need food, you go out and they sit on the food. And like, if you can leave them there longer, you're going to get more food. That is not how Arborea works. For some things, it works. Like if you need, if you want coral into the system, you just wait longer on that track. You're going to generate more coral, but you're going to generate a different kind of monster, possibly with a different kind of track. It's like, it's, it's those, and it's those corner details that have tremendous ripple effects based on how precise the requirements are for scoring things really, really well. And that's on top of the fact that the uh, spatial puzzle is well done and not to my taste. Like, again, I've, I've talked about this a billion times before. Spatial puzzles aren't my thing. I think it does a reasonably good job of it, though. I agree. I like the spatial puzzle there because at the end of the game, you're going to score a certain amount of points depending on where the monsters are and the type of terrains around them. And if, you know, they have a water with them, it doubles that. And if they're, you know, in linear lines with other monsters, they get bonus. Lots of things going on. And then on top of all this, there are the season tiles. And that's also going to pressure you to put your worker. Got to have those tracks. They're going to put more tracks. It's also going to pressure you to put your workers in, in other places as well. So yeah, yep. another decision on top of that. Because on these tracks, there's special spaces that help you move up these season scoring tiles that are multipliers. And they all have all sorts of different things. Have this type of monster. Have these number of cards. Have this type of They're card. pretty tracky tracks. All sorts of different ways. Tons of different options because you're putting them out randomly at the beginning of the game. So more things to figure out. And then there's also the move the sun tracker. Well, this is going to, this is going to <sighs> push the end game. Yes. The, it's, the, it's the duration not... of Arborea is determined entirely. The tempo of, of reaching the end game is determined entirely by how many monsters you generate. And again, Generating monsters is kind of like how generated resources. You just put them into the pool and anyone can go get them. Maybe you want to take them. Maybe you don't want to take them. And it is so easy to forget. <laughs> but luckily it's easy to sort of to check. To I see. wouldn't say easy. So you, you can count. It's calculable. It's calculable. You check all the monsters that are in. Make sure you see the ones that are, you know, in the holding pen and not in the holding pen and on the player's board. So you can quickly count them all up. and Quickly, make sure huh? That, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then <laughs> make sure you've moved that far on the sun tracker. It is, uh, to my mind, one of those definitionally fiddly elements uh, that is easy to forget. And yes, you can then evaluate. Well, one game, we did a spot check. And we found out that the game, the end game trigger should have happened a couple rounds ago yes. because we've gotten careless. This is not ideal. Uh, <laughs> this is this is to a certain extent solvable by you know during the rules explanation going hyperbolically overboard in terms of emphasizing it. By our last game, every time someone promoted a monster, two or three people would shout it in an obnoxious way, and two or three of those people were me, son, so that we would just remember to do it properly because it's it, it's super important and easy to miss. Exactly. So I feel the symbology overall is very good because there is a lot of it and yeah. a lot of it makes sense. You know, they, they even on that, on the, on the, the sun track, it even shows you every space that, that puts out a monster. There's a symbol of the sun to try to remind you to move the sun track. The iconography is good and transparent. Parsing the board is not. And then you may or may not like the fact, like I already said, that 
75% of the points are going to be calculated at the end. So you're going to have to know if, if you are the type of person that needs to know what the score is, hmm. this might not be the game for you. But at least you know, you can quickly glance around the table and see how all people are doing, right? If somebody has three or four monsters out, they're not going to, even if they're very, very well placed, the odds of them being competitive against somebody who's got seven or eight monsters out, slim to nil. Agreed. Like we've already said, it is a little bit long in the tooth. I think it could be cut down by 10 to 25%. For time length. Never play it again with five. Nope. It also does come with uh, the Kickstarter. This was a Kickstarter. It does come with an expansion in. We didn't play with any of the bonus stuff, but there's a built-in expansion. There's some Kickstarter modules that will give those, you know, different sage effects and different, you know, uh, tracks on tracks. So there's a lot to like about Aborea, but it's a lot to take in. Man, the color palette is ridiculous. It does look like a psychedelic trip for sure. I really like the monster design. We gave the monster design, like, I think one of them is canonically Mushfrog. And there's just, they're very inventive looking. They, they, they don't look like any sort of established folkloric mythology with which I'm immediately familiar. And they're very compelling in a sort of hideous and vaguely terrifying way. Uh, and I think the board is actually, you know, very attractive in terms of, of psychedelia and it, it presents a whole bunch of information relatively clearly. Processing all that information, though, I don't think is sufficiently easy in order to make intelligent decisions. And ultimately, again, that's one of my frustrations with Arborea. Like, all the individual bits I really like, but the problem is, in conjunction, all told, and this tension between this uh, navigating the vicissitudes of a chaotic economy, coupled with the need of everything to align properly in order to make any progress is not a juxtaposition that I think uh, leads to its best strengths. It's true, because on a turn, you can slide two slides for free. You can pay to do a third so that you're going down these slides, triggering all these effects. At the end of all of these slides, there is a sage effect that you may or may not have. So that's up to three different sage effects. So there's so much going on and and the downtime. And you it's if you're one of these things where it's like, oh, you know, you don't understand what's going on and the next person is, yep. is triggering all this stuff, it's going to double down on your frustration. I personally love this game. I am getting I'm excited to show it to more people. And uh I'd be willing to play it with two or three players. Yes. Past that, I don't think so. I, I And again, just as sort of an object lesson in sort of a illustration, a paradigmatic example of my frustrations with Arborea, I think the best turn I ever had, it was one where I actually got a card out and placed a monster and I think generated something like 20 points from leftover resources. And after it was over, as I was handing off to the next player, first of all, I thought, oh, I just wasted a whole bunch of people's time because I was going through all this mechanism. But anyway, instead of that, it wasn't egregious. It was it was not ideal, but it wasn't egregious. And the, But the more problematic aspect was my first reaction after tallying up the points and looking at, you know, having to manage this card and this other monster, I had no idea how I'd done it. I did not know how I'd done it. When I placed all my workers, I certainly had no expectation that that was going to be the ultimate consequence of what I was going to be doing. And that is just an indication that for me, for whatever reason, Arbori is just... As the Emperor of Austria would say, too many notes. Yeah. And it just doesn't play to its strength. I had this exact same thing. In the last turn, I had generated a certain amount of spirit to get me to the top of the track. And then as soon as I ended my turn, I had to look down and says, okay, are you sure you got to the top of the track? And it took me all the way, you know, all the way around <laughs> the table for it to get back to me. Yeah. And I realized, oh yeah, wait, on the back of this card, it gave me that one spirit that I couldn't calculate. And yeah, it was, yeah. 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 It's unfortunate, like when, especially when you compare it to 
lots of games that are more mechanically complex, like to your average splatter, even to a lot of Mind Clash games, right? Uh, you know, I think of, uh, of, of even the Mind Clash games that I'm not a massive fan of, uh, like Tracarion. Tracarion is one of those Euros where everything has to be, all your ducks have to line up in a row in order to get anywhere. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci is actually a little bit like that too. You, you need all your workers to, to work together and you need the specific resource to get everything together. The thing is though, you can look at the board, look at your resources and easily parse yes. whether or not you're going to be able to do that. In those games, everything has its own little sort of phase and timing and, and area to do that in um, um, Aboria, unfortunately, it's just everywhere. And, and they're not the married, time. and they're not married to an economy that is yeah. fundamentally chaotic. Yes, which unfortunately, the economy has to be chaotic for it to work, for yes. it to be so interesting in terms of being able to trade off the resources that you generate for points or actual resources. So, if they could, if 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 the designer could, I, I think this is much more interesting than Barcelona for what it's worth. Barcelona also was, uh, you know, a lot of combo-tastic elements, but at least in Barcelona you could figure out what was going on, but in Arborea it's more interesting. It, 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 I feel like Danny Garcia's third game might be a real banger, right? Like, I, he's getting towards something. He's getting there, but, but to my mind he hasn't quite got there yet. And that's going to do it for this week. Thanks very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information on our website, sowronggames.com, specifically sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for having decided to spend some time with us. We hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.